0: Welcome to the Center Ranch Church weekly podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Excited that you're here today. Today's going to be a great day. I believe God has something for us from his word this morning. Excited to start a brand new series here in just a minute. Before we do that, I want to take a couple of minutes and just kind of remind ourselves of the series that we just finished last week. We took four weeks or so in a series that we called Help Wanted and used Matthew chapter nine, what Jesus said at the end of that chapter kind of as a launching point for that series where Jesus sees the the mass amount of people that are lost and confused and in need. And he says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says that the harvest is plentiful. The problem is that the laborers are few. So that's what we kind of played off of that. In the heart of God, the need is for there to be people who are willing to go after the lost, to go and tell people the good news about Jesus and to bring them into a relationship. And we want to be people that line up and help meet the the need that Jesus saw, that help answer the prayer that Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that there would be laborers, that we would be part of the answer, amen? That people from Center Branch Church would be interested and passionate and willing to tell people that don't know about Jesus the good news that he came and he died for them and rescued them, amen. So we we talked about a number of different things in that series. We talked about how it's God's number one priority that people would come to know him so they could spend eternity with him in heaven instead of eternity in hell separated from him. We talked about how it needs to be our number one priority as individuals, as a church. Pastor Jonathan did an incredible job talking about the. The anointing, being filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to be witnesses, that we can have boldness to tell people the good news about Jesus. Last week, Pastor Christina did a great, great job talking about us as parts of the body, that every one of us has a role, that we serve together, that the church is, functions best when all of us are playing our role and using, using our giftings and serving with a common mission and a common vision, all of us working in unity together. So I don't want to just move on beyond that and jump into another series. We do that, but we've also got to be careful that we take what we've learned and we continue to apply it. You heard Pastor Christina announce that in just three weeks is Easter Sunday. And so we want to make a a wise use of that opportunity as we're trying to reach the lost. It's an opportunity to invite people to come to church where they are most willing to respond to that invitation. Hey, where where are you going to? Just assume that they are. Where are you going to church for Easter Sunday? Just paint them into a corner right off the bat. Assume that you you will be in church on Easter Sunday. Just where is it going to be? I'm inviting you to to come with me. So we want to be shrewd with that opportunity. Put together the best service that we can. Present the gospel. What we get to celebrate celebrate. Jesus came and he died on the cross for us. He was put in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He's alive and we can know God through a relationship with Jesus. We want to proclaim that to people. I believe this can be our biggest Easter Sunday that we've ever had, that we can have the most people here, but it's going to take all of us working together, pulling in the same direction to accomplish that. Amen. So what we're going to advertise, we've got Invite cards that we're gonna shove in your hand as you walk out of the door so you can be inviting people. We're, we're gonna do mailers and put it on social media, all of those things, but rarely does somebody respond just because they got a, something in the mail or they saw something online. All of that just kind of sets the background and sets you up to make a personal invitation and they, they, they got something in the mail about that and they saw something on Facebook about that and somebody, somebody gave them an invitation at the grocery store and then you come and you seal the deal by a personal invitation trying to set you up. It takes all of us working together. Amen. So I, we we've got sounds funny to announce. Batman, Batman's going to be Batman's <laughs> going to be coming. The Batmobile will be here. What's neat is we're going to we're going to do School assemblies, and I think five different elementary schools. We're going to go in, we're going to bless the community, the public schools. And when we're in there, just talking about uh, general good things in life, we're going to invite all of those kids to join us on Easter Sunday. We're going to be going out in our community. We want to bring in not just a high attendance, that's part of it, we want to bring in a harvest. Yes. So, so I want you to join me, just be believing, inviting. We want every person to have, who's one person that you're going after? Every person should have someone that they're praying for, believing, inviting, ministering to. So all of them are on the same page. Amen? Yes. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 13, it says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Verse 14, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do we'll finish that verse and read, read the next one but Peter is writing this letter to Christians. He's writing to believers. And notice what he's doing is he's talking about an old way of living. And then he says, but now, but now what? He's talking about now there is a new way of living, and he's contrasting the two. There should be a difference the way that you lived before you came to know Jesus and the way that you live now. He says that there was an old way of living. How many of you have an old way of living? A way that you used to live. way that you used to operate, a way that you used to think. He says, you didn't know any better back then. It seemed like wisdom to you. You were just operating like people operate in the natural. If it feels good, I want to do it. If I want to have it, then I'm going to move in that direction and try to get my hands on it. If there's something that benefits me, well, then that's what I'm going to try to accomplish. That's the way that people operate on their own. But that's an old way of living. He says, but now, but now, there should be a difference between how you used to live and and how you live now that you've come to know Jesus. And the reason he's giving this instruction, he says, don't slip back into your new, your old way of living, which means that it is very possible yes. to come to know Jesus, but you still live like you used to live instead of making that change. It says, but now you must be holy. Now you must be Holy, which is where we're getting the name of this series, and we're starting it today. I just want to lay some groundwork for us to build on these next couple of weeks, God's call on our lives. If we know Jesus now, now that you've come to know Jesus, now that you know his mercy, now that you know forgiveness, now that you know fellowship, now that you know how wonderful he is, there should be a change, and what it should look like is now you should be, be holy. Holy holy is a word that means to be pure, to be clean. It also means to be different. It means to be set apart. The priests would wear something on their turbans. that would say they, they're holy unto the Lord. They're set apart in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, holy unto the Lord. They're not just regular people. There was something different, something special. It, it even affected the way land was distributed and what, what they could own and not own. They, they were different than everyone else because they were holy unto the Lord. So it means to be, it means to be separated. But now you must be holy, verse 15, in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. So it says, be holy, why? Well, one of the reasons he gives is because the scriptures say, how many of you know that the scripture is supposed to be our standard for the way that we live our lives, the way that we conduct ourselves, not what everyone is doing around us, not what is acceptable to society, not what just makes us feel good or my preference or your preference. It should come back to scripture. The, the scripture is a canon or a, a measuring rod that we're supposed to hold up to our lives to make sure we're living in line with it. So we're supposed to be holy, first of all, because the word of God gives us the instruction to be holy, be holy. Uh, Scripture, the Bible says in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired and it's useful for teaching, training, correcting, rebuking, bringing people along in the ways of righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God can be fully equipped for every good work. There's things that God has designed you to accomplish works that he had in mind when he formed you. But you will be ill-equipped. You won't be able to reach your potential and do all the things that God has called you to do if you don't live your life in line with the word of God. Scriptures God breathes so you can be and do what God has called you to do and to be. So he says, be holy for the scripture says to, and then he quotes from Leviticus. For the scriptures say, you must be holy Because I am holy. So he's giving us layers of reasons why to do it. The scripture said. And in the scripture, God says, be holy. And he gives a reason. The reason is because I am holy. You know that God wants you to be like him. God is holy. He is your father. And he wants you to be like him. And as we grow in our relationship, we should grow in our holiness. We should become more and more like our heavenly father. The closer you get to God, the more holiness you should be walking in. God wants you to be like him. We'll read another verse from 1 Peter, but let me jump over to 1 John chapter 3 and read a few verses from there. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he carries the same idea of being like God, being like our Father. Verse 1 says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. So I'm gonna skip a few verses down. I wanted to read that just to kind of know the tone or the context for what he's talking about. He's talking about the reality that we are God's children and he is our father. And he brings up the issue of who we belong to. He talks about people who belong to this world. So that's kind of the, the topic that's being dealt with. Skip down to verse seven. He says, dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ was righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning from the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning, because they are children of God. Listen to this. So now we can tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Have you ever seen the movie Toy Story? Of course you have. Everyone's seen the movie Toy Story. If you haven't, it's a movie about toys that come alive when nobody is around. They belong to this kid named Andy. And there's a a goofy cowboy named Woody. And he's kind of the leader of the leader of the toys. You know, it's funny with movies like that, you can sit down and watch them. It's like it makes perfect sense. Just yeah, naturally, this is the way it works. But when you try to like summarize it. You sound crazy, the, the, the toys being led by his cowboy. So that, that's kind of the, the, the gist of the movie, right? So if you've seen it, what's written on the bottom of Woody's boot? Andy, Andy right? The, and every once in a while in the movie, he'll even kind of his foot over and look down. It's kind of an emotional, sentimental moment. He'll just glance down and see Andy's written on the bottom of his boot, right? Why? What, What was the significance of that being on there? He was marked and identified who it was that he belonged to. And that passage of scripture is saying that the same thing happens in all of our lives, that there is a mark on your life. There's a mark on my life that whether you like it or not, it reveals who it is that you belong to. And it says that the children of God, those who belong, To God, they they cannot just keep on sinning. They can't make room for sin in their lives. And if they do, someone who's just okay with sin in their life, it's a mark. It shows that they belong to the devil instead of belonging to God. You and I should have a mark on our lives a desire for righteousness, a pursuit of holiness, a hunger and thirst for the things of God that identify us as sons and daughters of the Most High God. You should be able to see it in our lives that we're not like everybody else. There's something dry. Us to be more and more like our Father. Be holy, because I am holy. You know, it it irritates me sometimes when I find out that someone in our church or just a Christian in general has started dating someone. And if if you you know if I know you and and you've started dating someone, one of the first questions I'm going to ask is, oh, does he love the Lord? Oh, is she a Christian? it bothers me how often someone will respond, oh, I don't know, we've only been dating a couple of weeks. I don't know yet, we've only been dating a couple of months. First of all, that should be a prerequisite, not something you find out somewhere down the line. But if you can't see evidence, you you know, they're marked one way or the other. You look at their life. If they're pursuing righteousness, if they're okay with sin in their life, if they're making allowance for it, they just continue in old habits, and it doesn't repel them, they're not striving to become more like Jesus. There's a they carry a mark, you can identify people who they belong to. People can identify you, who you belong to, by your pursuit of righteousness and holiness or a lack of it. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We left off in verse 16. Pick it up in verse 17. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So we'll read the rest of that verse. But it says that there's coming a point in time where we're going to stand before the Lord and we'll either be judged or we'll be rewarded. In accordance with what? With what you do your behavior. Thank God for how gracious and kind he is. Thank God for the grace of God. It's so important, so beautiful, so wonderful, so necessary, but some people have twisted and manipulated the grace of God and and reformed it into what fits them best and made it a license for sin. That they, they can just allow sin to remain in their lives and just kind of give a nod of their head to, hey, thank God for his grace, huh? We have the, the grace of God. We're all just sinners and they make room for it. They, they, they fail to see, God doesn't have favorites. He's gonna judge all of us or reward us in line, not with how much you pled on the grace of God, but you have a responsibility to allow the grace of God not just to cover past sins, but to make you strong on the inside side and where you used to be weak, now that is a strength for you because you're relying on the grace, the grace of God. That's how the grace of God is supposed to operate in our lives, not license for sin. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So how should we respond to that? So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. As temporary, I I love the way that that's worded. In the New King James, it says, throughout the time of your stay here. Throughout the time of your, it's like you're checking into a hotel or something. Just drawing attention to how brief life is. This life is so temporary. What a foolish mistake to go all in on pleasures in the here and now. This thing's going to be over before you know it. If you live 70, 80, 90 years, even if you live to be 120, which is an old person. Somebody's 120, they've lived a long life. But what is that compared to eternity? It's it's nothing compared to eternity. So it says, in view of that, this is a temporary stay. What? What holy lives we should live. He, he has the same idea in 2 Peter. Go ahead and flip over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 9. It says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake not wanting anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Now, if you were here in our last series, we referred to this passage multiple times. At the beginning of the chapter, he starts to talk about God's promise that Jesus is going to return. And people say, oh, they've always been saying that. They'll find reasons to dismiss that. And so that's what he's referring to here. He's not being slow about keeping his promise. He's being patient. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. He doesn't want... To, God's not looking to to drop the hammer on people and condemn people. That's what we celebrate with Easter. God went way out of his way by sending his son as a sacrifice to carry the brunt of our punishment, to die the death that you and I deserve, to pay the price of sins, died and rose again. That's what that's what we celebrate. So God's not looking to make people feel bad about themselves. God's looking to rescue people and redeem people and bringing them into right relationship, set them free and make them brand new, make them his sons and daughters. That That's what God is interested in. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. But that's not where this passage ends. He continues. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. Hasn't come yet. Doesn't mean it's not going. It will come. It's going to happen. The day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. He's talking about the end. He's talking about judgment being rained down on the earth. He's talking about the return of Jesus and how he sort of summarizes or concludes this topic is by going back to our lifestyle and how we live. He says everything is coming to an end. It's not... The response isn't be super afraid, be really worried, be holy. What holy and godly lives we should live. When I was growing up, it seemed like it was uh, popular to put out scary movies about the end times. If anyone remembers any of these movies, just absolutely terrifying. uh, Thief in the Night was, was one of them or a series of them. And if you've ever watched those, you've also had some sleepless nights as a child, I can assure you. Just terrifying. And on these movies, crazy things would be happening. About, it's about the end of the world and end times. And if the, the government start trying to control people, everything they do. The government trying to inject people with things. Nations invading other nations. It's like watching the evening news now. I mean, those things, that's, that's, what is, that's exactly what is happening. You know, the government trying to control people and restrict people and inject them with things. And nation, that, we're living in those times. It's happening, it's happening around us. So in view of that, again, it's not the response that these things are going to happen. He doesn't say as a response, dig a, a fallout shelter and store up a, you know, dry food and all those kinds of things. The response is what holy and godly lives you should live. It shouldn't strike fear in us other than the fear of I need to get sin out out of my life, and I need to get myself walking in holiness and righteousness, not how deep of a hole can I dig, but how holy can I walk? That, that's the response that we're supposed to have when it comes to the, the reality, the realization we are living in the last days in the end times. First Peter chapter one, again, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In what area? While you're in church, in a couple areas, in your tithing, when it comes to, to sexual, in all of everything. Be holy in all of your conduct. Why? Because it's written. The Word of God says it. Be holy, for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about the holiness of God. It's important for us to stretch ourselves in our understanding of the holiness of, of God. And I want to take a couple of minutes just to, to make an attempt to stretch our hearts and our minds in that direction. Even though we know that ultimately it's futile to truly understand God and for us as finite beating, beings to wrap our minds around what is infinite, infinite, because God God is infinite. Try to understand his holiness. The word holy means that, There's nobody like him. He's completely separate. No one can be compared to him or or with him. And so we, we try to use analogies to talk about what God is like. And the Bible even uses analogies and says he's like this or it's like that and parables and those kinds of things, which is good and helpful as long as we don't allow those analogies to become something that defines or limits our understanding. If you have a pet at home, if you've got a dog or a cat, maybe you've had this experience where you try to point something out to the dog, and instead of looking where you're pointing, they just, they just look at your finger instead of where, where you're pointing. So there's something that gets spilled, and you want your dog to lick it up, which is how, how we handle cleaning at my house, Oh, over there. And instead of understanding, unless you've really trained them, the concept of pointing, most animals don't get. And you've, you've held out a finger, you've extended a, your hand, so they, they look at your finger instead of where the finger is pointing. Maybe you've had that experience or noticed that about animals. Well, sometimes we can be the same way when it comes to the language we use to try to describe what God is like. When we try to refer to his attributes and we... To try to understand something that you don't understand, you have to start somewhere. So you have to start with language and concepts and analogies that you do understand and try to use them to bridge the gap to something beyond what you've ever understood before. And that, that's that's good. But when the Bible, for example, uses the analogy of God being like a gardener or God being like a friend, we, we've got to understand that we don't want to just look at the end of the finger. We want to look where it is pointing and not allow those things to totally define what God is, but just the beginning of moving in that direction. Am I making sense? That we, we don't want to allow, okay, oh, God's God's like a garden, Jesus is like a vine, and God's like a gardener. Okay, I, I think I pretty much understand God. I can go down to, to Lowe's Home and Garden section and just observe the gardeners as they're purchasing things, and they're, they're gardeners, so now I know what God is like. No, no, that, that, that's just pointing in it. There are some attributes. There's some likeness. That doesn't completely define or limit God. It's pointing in a direction, and there's things I can learn, but he's so far beyond being a gardener. He, he's, he's a father. He's like your earthly father, but he's, he's not just like he's like a really good dad. No, that's just a finger pointing in a direction. He is an infinitely good dad. He's so far, so far beyond. We, we've got to be careful that we don't come up with some small concept of God. God's like a really good buddy. No, he's, a, he's like a friend that stays closer than a brother, but you can't, you can't limit to him, like your best friend from school, and now you know what God is like. You're looking at the end of the finger instead of allowing that to be a point that you get, you're, you're stretching your understanding in that direction. Let me give you an example from Ephesians chapter three. In Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse 18, it says this, and may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. He's talking about the love of God. In everything that God is, he is completely. So the fact that God is infinite, that applies to all of his attributes. So his love is infinite. And he says, you should have the power to understand. How high, how deep, how long, how wide. We sang about it a few minutes ago, the love of God. You should try to grow in your understanding of the infinite love of God, but because it's infinite, you'll never fully understand. You'll never be able to wrap your mind around it. That's not reason to not try to understand it. We can make progress, but he says, you'll you'll never fully understand how wide, it just keeps going in every direction because God is love and everything that he is, he, he is it completely and he is it infinitely. When the Bible says that the Lord God is one, it's not just talking about there being one God. That's part of it. But it's also talking about He is, he's complete. Everything that he is, he is completely. He doesn't have sections or divisions that you catch him in this mood or in that mood. He, he's one. A complete integrity and thoroughness. So God, God is eternal. He's infinite in all of his qualities, in all of his attributes. And so that means we can't fully understand all that he is, but we can understand what he isn't. We know that he's not small. We know that he's not limited. Right. We, we, we know the direction our understanding should be moving in when it comes to the holiness, when it comes to the holiness of God. We know we, we can't have a small view of God and, and we need to be growing in our understanding. I don't know if you remember taking art in in high school, or maybe you've taken other art classes or art courses, but there's something that they sometimes use when they're drawing called a vanishing point. you familiar with like the vanishing point. You can have one vanishing point. You can have multiple vanishing points. And the idea is that if you use these vanishing points, it helps your drawing to have depth. You can add perspective when, when you draw, when you kind of put these vanishing points and allow things to kind of move in that direction, it creates a horizon in depth. So I've got an example, you can throw that up on the screen for a minute, of vanishing points. So this, this has two vanishing points, one on, one on each side. You can see if you're drawing a box or a, a building or a house or something, you kind of draw those lines back on either side and it begins to make it three-dimensional. It begins to add depth to it. And so as you move in either direction, and you reach that vanishing point, what's trying to be conveyed isn't that that's where everything ends. It's not where everything stops. The idea is that it it keeps on going you just lose the ability to see it from this perspective. You look off in the other direction. You can see things move off, and it hits that vanishing point. And it's not that it just stops or ends, it's suggesting, no, it just it just keeps on going. You're just losing from your perspective, you just can't see it from where you are, but it continues, it continues on. And it's that way when we try to understand God, you can take, you can take that down. It's that way when we try to understand aspects of, of God's holiness, how separate and different he is, that he is infinite. And maybe one of the easier attributes of God when we try to understand this is to consider that he is eternal. Have you ever taken time to think about how God is eternal? That you can stretch your mind to a certain distance before it starts to wear out. What is it going to be like to be around forever and ever and just keep on going? I can imagine, okay, being around 100 years, 200 years, 3,000 years, 10 billion years. God, it just keeps on going. At some point, your, your, your thoughts begin to sort of collapse on themselves. They become exhausted. I just can't go any further. When you think about how God always has been. He was never, he has no beginning. He always was. You can go back. I- you know, a certain distance. What was it like a thousand years ago? Ten thousand years ago? You you reach a point where your mind you just can't conceive of it. It's not that he didn't exist. You just lose the ability to perceive it with your finite with your finite mind. Now that's just when it comes to to time. He always was. He is. He always will be. But we can apply that to his mercy, to his love. And what happens? You try to stretch yourself in your understanding of how holy God is in one direction, but we don't like going beyond and admitting I don't fool understand something or it's uncomfortable to push the edges of our understanding. It's uncomfortable to try to make ourselves grow in in those areas. So we go the other direction. We try to stretch ourselves. But what often happens is we back off from the edges of our understanding and come up with ideas and concepts of God that are more comfortable for us Because they're easier for us to understand and easier for us to handle. And so we talk about how God is holy. He's like, he's just like really good. He's just like, think about the greatest guy you've ever known. God's like that. No, 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 no. He's infinitely holy, infinitely worthy, infinitely powerful. You can think about God is worthy of all praise. His worthiness knows no bounds. When we say he is all powerful, that's not he's really, really strong. He's like the strongest guy in the world. No, he, he has all power. He's infinitely power. There's nothing he lacks the ability to accomplish. He is all powerful. So if you think about trying to rank living beings, According to their worth, according to their intellect, according to their power. I don't know what the bottom, bottom species would be in your mind. I assume for everybody it would be cats. So we'll just say cats are at the, at the very bottom. So the lowest, the lowest possible life form. So that, that, that's at the bottom. And then, you know, we've got algae or single cell organisms uh, above that. And you've got, you know, worms and insects and all, all the animals. You're just kind of ranking them, right? And then you're going to get, eventually you're going to get to human beings. And then after human beings, you can keep on going, get into to spiritual beings, angels, archangels. There's ranking even in the spiritual realm, cherubim and seraphim. You, you rank everything that there is, and then way at the top is God. And that makes sense in our limited understanding, but that's not really how it works there isn't some ranking system and God is just really high at the top of it because God is as high above the seraphim and the archangels as he is the cat and the algae because he, he's infinite. He, no, no one is beside him. Nobody compares to him. There is nobody like him. So it's not that he's just really, really high up on the scale. No, he just keeps on going. He's beyond our ability. And I'm doing a poor job, but I'm just trying to stir our hearts and our minds to begin stretching in that direction to appreciate when we say God is holy... And that's not like just giving him a thumbs up. What we're trying, that's what the angels declare over and over and over in heaven because he's so, he's so unlike, so separate, so different from anything that there is. He, he's, he's holy. In fact, this is what it says in Revelation chapter 4. Each of these living beings had six wings, and they're, with their wings they covered covered all over with eyes inside and out, day after day and night after night. They keep on saying... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was who is and who is still to come so even the angels i feel like i'm in good company because even the angels as they're trying to trying to talk about how how god is he's holy they even use the fact that he he's eternal just as he is all almighty struggling for ways to try to point in the direction of how magnificent how wonderful how great god is that he's higher than the highest stronger than the strongest bigger than the biggest wiser than the wisest all of those things are just Fingers pointing in a direction. They, they don't encapsulate who he is. They just suggest he's, he's in this direction. And even though we can't reach and, and totally define and comprehend him, we, we've got to also make sure that we don't limit who and what he is and make him something he's not. Because essentially, that, that's what idolatry is. To define God by something other than what he is. He, he's holy. He's holy. He's worthy. He's worthy. So as we wrap this up today, I just want to talk about one aspect of holiness that I mentioned before, and it means to be separate, to be separate, to be set apart, different, different. Because God says for us to be holy as he is holy, and holy means to be, to be different than everyone, everyone around you. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you've read through the book of Revelation, you know that in the beginning, Jesus writes letters to seven different churches. One of those churches being the church of Laodicea. And I want to read a couple of verses from what he says. Revelation chapter 3, starting verse 15. (laughs) because he uses that as an illustration of how he will respond to a certain attribute of the church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, I will spew you, some translations say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. There's something that's going on in this church, in these believers, some attribute of their life that Jesus says, I find it so revolting, so unacceptable that I I will spit you just like I did. I'm just gonna get you. I'm gonna launch you out of my mouth. I've got to reject it. Now he says, I I were that you would be hot or cold. And there's been a lot of teaching, a lot of preaching on what it means to be hot, what it means to be cold. People way more intellectual, way smarter than I am. So I'll just give it to you from a a simple understanding that I have. That it doesn't seem to be Jesus' point to figure out what it means to be hot for the Lord or what it means to be cold for the Lord and try to compare those two because Jesus seems indifferent. He says, I I, I would that you be one or the other. The point that he's making is that we not be lukewarm and that's what's to be avoided in our lives. Now, if I were to go and get you a drink, whether it be a hot drink or a cold drink. I'm gonna go get some coffee, what do you want? You want a latte, you want that iced, or do you want that hot? You want some iced tea. You want some cold lemonade, a nice cold drink. You want some hot coffee. You want some hot chocolate. And I went and I got you a drink, whatever it is that you wanted, whether it be hot or cold. And we're just standing around talking. We just kind of set it down here on the platform. I gave it to you, but you know, we're we're talking. What would need to happen as you set that drink down and we continue our conversation? What would need to happen for that beverage to stop being cold or to stop being hot and end up becoming lukewarm or tepid? What, What would need to happen? Just sit there? And what would be happening as it just sat there that, that would actually cause it to become lukewarm? It would just be slowly becoming more and more like its environment. And when it becomes just like its environment, we'd say, oh, that, that's room temperature. That's lukewarm. That, that has become tepid. So Jesus is talking about there should be a distinction, a separation between the people of God and the culture and the environment that they live in. When it comes to hot and cold, there there is a distinction. You can tell, oh, that's really cold. Oh, that's really hot. The problem with lukewarm, it it has become and adapted to become just like its environment. That is a problem in the church, in the body of Christ, that we've tried to adapt and match and fit in and blend in and and lose our distinction. Jesus says that's the very character trait, lukewarmness. You blend in. You're just like everyone around you that he finds so vile. He says, I'll spew you out of, out of my mouth, that there should be a distinction between Christian and non-Christian. A Christian teenager shouldn't be the same as a non-Christian teenager. There should be a difference between a Christian husband and a non-Christian husband, a Christian marriage and a non-Christian marriage, but way too often there, you can't tell the difference. It's all blended. We've adapted and become like the culture around us. There should be a difference between a Christian customer and a non-Christian customer. A Christian employee or employer and a non-Christian employee or employer. There should be a difference between having a Christian neighbor and a non-Christian neighbor. In all of our conduct and everything that we do, he says be holy in everything. That means there should be a distinction. When people encounter you and I, the people of God, they should come in contact with something that is different the environment around them. He's calling us to separation, to be different, not, not to blend in, to be holy as he is holy. By the, by the way that we love, we, we, by our kindness, by our honesty, by our integrity, by our patience, by our gratitude, by the way that we treat people, the way that we, the way that we relate to people, the way we handle our finances and all of those areas. There should be a difference in all of our conduct. The way that you treat the waitress. In everything. There should be a distinction with men and women of God and it shows who you belong to. Be holy like, like I am. Be different than everyone else. Be holy. He's calling us to be holy. I want to read a couple of verses from Nehemiah and then we'll pray. Nehemiah chapter 1 starting in verse 1. He says, These are the memoirs of Nehemiah son of Hekeliah in late autumn in the month of Kislev in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. And I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well. For those who've returned to the province of Judah, they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. This is being written at a time where the Jews had been taken away to exile, and then they were given permission for some of them to return and live back in Jerusalem, back where they came from. And Nehemiah is still living in Persia. He's serving the king. And so some of the people who had gone away, they'd gone back to Jerusalem, they come back to visit. One of them happens to be his brother. He's excited to see him. How, how are things going? How are things, tell me what's going on in Jerusalem. And instead of a good report, he says, it, It's not good. It's not good. The people there, are, we're in trouble. It's, it's a, I've got to tell you, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace what's happening. What, what does he point to as the reason that the people of God are in trouble? That it's, it's just a disgrace. He says, because the wall is down. That's what he says. They're in trouble. It's a disgrace because the walls come down. The gates have been burned. And he says, when I heard this, man, I just I fell down on the ground. I started to weep. He says, in fact, this went on for days and shed a few tears and then finished my my day at work. For days I wept. I couldn't couldn't eat anything. Fasted, I mourned, crying out to God. Now for Jerusalem, that wall would would be protection, but it would also be separation. There, There would be a separation between those people and the people outside the city. That you knew if you were in Jerusalem or not, Depending on what side of the wall you were on. And so, if you allow me to use that wall as a, an analogy of holiness and suggest that in a lot of ways, the church is in similar condition to Jerusalem in trouble, in trouble. It's a disgrace. Why? Because the, the walls, the holiness, has been torn down, it's been eradicated, it's been made little, little of, it's a, it's a disgrace. I had someone from our church just a couple of weeks ago text me and wonder, hey, what? You know, I, I saw something, heard something, somebody asked me a question about homosexual ministers, and I, I'm not even sure, where does our church stand on this? And they were referring to someone in, in the local area, a pastor who's a homosexual and, and, and promotes that, they want to know, where do we stand on it? Now, listen, we, we, we love sinners. We love people no matter what sin they're tangled up in, but we love them too much to just excuse and pacify them in their sin. We know there's too much on the line. They're, they're worth too much. They're too valuable just to make them feel good about whatever it is they're engaged in. But when you've got not just people who are engaged in homosexuality, that, that's one thing but to actually be promoting it in the church. church is in trouble, that's a disgrace. Holiness has been torn down like the walls around Jerusalem. It's it's a problem. Listen to what it says in chapter 2. We won't take time to read through the whole story, but he finds favor. Nehemiah does. He finds favor in the eyes of King Artaxerxes, and he's allowed to return to Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 17, it says, But now I said to them, the people who were living in Jerusalem, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. What I feel like the Spirit of God wants to stir in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives is that same kind of attitude. Let's rebuild the walls that have been torn down. Let's end the disgrace of the people of God being just like everybody else. Let's resurrect our our high calling to holiness and righteousness instead of giving a wink in a nod to people that are tangled up in sin, call sin, sin, and move people in the direction of our Heavenly Father to be holy as He is holy. Let's rebuild the wall and end this disgrace. Sometimes when you talk about holiness in the church, it just becomes a, an opportunity for people to point out flaws and point out where you're messed up. I hope he's paying attention. Maybe she'll finally straighten out this thing in her life. That, that's not the attitude that we want to have. Right. And if we read through chapter 3, I'll read a few verses. Chapter 3 is basically just a list of all the people who are working on the wall. Verse 10, it says, Next to Jediah, or something, Son of Huramoth, repaired the wall across from his own house and next to him was Hadish, son of Hashabaniah. Like the, the names are, are causing the point that I'm trying to make to be overshadowed. The point I want to try to get out of that verse is where they were building the walls. It says they were building near their own house. Verse 23 after them Benjamin and Hassahub Repaired the section across from their house. And Azariah, son of Masaiyah, and grandson of Ananiah repaired the section across from his house. Drop down to verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. Verse 29, Zadok, son of Immer, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house. Instead of this being a time where we fault fine and point out flaws and use it as an opportunity for gossip, there's gotta be personal responsibility, that I start building the wall of holiness in my own life and allow God, come and search me. I don't want to compare myself to someone else and achieve my holiness by putting somebody else down and showing where they come up short in different areas. God, search me. Let me rebuild holiness in my own life, in my own heart, in my own family. Father, show me what things need to go. Father, show me what things need to come. What needs to be rearranged? Where priorities? Father, that you would soften my heart, that I'd be completely willing to add what needs to be added, to remove what needs to be removed. Let the wall be rebuilt in my family. And through that, if each one of us would rebuild it in our own house, you know what would happen? The wall of holiness and righteousness would be rebuilt. And the people of God would be distinct in our community, in in this region. No longer a disgrace, but something that brings glory to the Father. That we represent Him because we're increasingly like Him. Holy, it means to be separate, to be distinct, not, not like everybody else, not lukewarm, not just adjusting, slowly becoming more and more like the environment around us. I would that you be hot or cold, just, just be different. Be distinct. Here's what I wanna do. We kind of just begin this series. Take a few moments and invite God to soften our hearts. There would be a willingness, Lord, stir a fresh hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You know, going back to that drink analogy, a hot cup of coffee becoming lukewarm, or a cold glass of iced tea becoming lukewarm, This doesn't happen in a moment. It's a, it's a gradual, slow process, slowly becoming more and more like the environment. So maybe you're here and you're, you're I'm not lukewarm. Okay. Are you hot? Are you cold? have Have you started that move towards blending in, adjusting to culture and the norms of the people around us? So I want to take a few moments. Just invite God, come and deal with my heart. Lord, as we start focusing on holiness, just for these next couple of weeks, I want to be yielded to you Nothing is off limits. Come and make whatever changes. Lord, begin to point things out. Show me areas that need to be dealt with. Be ready to write it down. Be ready to hear the Holy Spirit say, you know what, this is going on in your marriage. This is going on in the things that you watch, the things that you listen to. This relationship, it's not right. The way that you talk to this person, whatever it is, this habit, it's not holiness. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, Make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.